Okay, if I can find this in here, I want to see Andy before the throne again. It's on. Oh, you don't have it on there? Okay. I'll go over here. Before the throne. Let's see, is it on here, Bree? There it is. Okay. Goodness gracious. You can sense mornings when the Holy Spirit's at work, you know? It's, it's not uh, that the Holy Spirit is not work. Anytime we come together, it's a supernatural Sunday. We are redeemed people who have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, and that's a supernatural act. And the Holy Spirit of God dwells with His people. We learned that last week as we looked at uh, being sealed with the Spirit in Ephesians 1. So every single week when we come together, there's a uniqueness about it. There's a specialty to it, that the fact that we are now supernatural people. So it's not a natural gathering. There's natural gatherings that happen all the time throughout the week. This is a supernatural gathering. It's people who have been redeemed by Jesus and brought from death to life. And when we gather together, there's, there's unique times when the Holy Spirit is pressing upon more people, particular things, and in, in which the Holy Spirit's working in a special way. Every week we come together, there's the Holy Spirit's at work within each one of us. But you can just sense, even on mornings like this morning when we're singing to God and we're thinking about King of Heaven come now, and then we think about um, our pardon, that Jesus uh, stands as our great high priest. Just listen to these words and just uh, I sense the Holy Spirit pressing these deep into me again this morning. Uh, we've heard these truths. If you've been walking with Jesus for any, any amount of time at all, you've heard the truth about Jesus being our high priest time and time again. And yet, there's still power in it. There's a depth to it, the truth. Um, that just it's, it's like Alice in Wonderland. The, the whole, the truth just keeps expanding before us. And so I'm just going to read these again and just such a powerful thing to sing. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Why do I need to plea? Because I, there's times this week where I just I recognize I'm, I'm a needy man. I need someone to plea and be for me. And we have in Christ one who's for us. Great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me dense depart. When Satan tempts me to despair. You ever been in despair? Yeah, you've been there. We have some people in our church right now going through some really difficult situations. Just hard. We've got a friend of mine going through a really, really hard time. And the enemy during times of, of difficulty typically comes and starts being the accuser of the brethren. Have you heard that phrase for the enemy? Well, when he comes and he's the accuser of the brethren, this is why I love here when we come together, we get to sing things like this. Andy does a great job shepherding us when we sing because we sing stuff like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. It's just... Incredible. So we're just going to pray and uh, ask for the Holy Spirit to continue, because worship continues on. Now we get to open the Bible, and I can get up here and rant and rail, and it's not the Word of God, but when I read the Word of God, we're hearing from God Himself. And so we're going to hear from God Himself this morning. And I pray by God's grace that I'm as faithful as I can possibly be to His Word. And I say it, say it pretty regularly, you do not need to hear from me this morning. Uh, we need to hear from God. And so we need to hear from His Word, and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will work and that He would make uh, His Word true as it is true in our hearts, that we would be formed according to His Word, that we would not try to form His Word. We would be formed and shaped by His Word. So let's pray. 
Father, thank you that we get to sing songs that are truth. And this truth shapes us. This week, if I'm tempted to despair, and if there's an enemy telling me of my guilt within, I can remember a song like this and think, oh no, I have a sinless Savior who died and He is pleading for me. My sinful soul is counted free. We thank you for that. For truth that's large enough to hold me, to hold us through the week when we're despairing. For these situations that are happening in our midst and and, uh, even outside of our church of just difficulty, we ask God that you would intervene, that you would comfort. God, that you would stay true to your character, which you're, you're the comforter of your people. You're a good father, and we're asking you to continue to be a good father to those who are suffering and in difficulty. We lift up the other churches that are gathering around, and specifically this week, I lift up uh, Owensboro Gospel Community Church and the unreached people group that they're reaching, the deaf community. I ask that there would be a revival among the deaf community in Owensboro, that they would hear the gospel through signed speaking, and the Holy Spirit, that you would awaken souls there this morning. Help us here this morning, God. I pray for the churches that are gathering around Carbondale. I pray the truth of the gospel would be transforming this morning. That you would push back darkness and these pockets of praise, these gatherings of Christian believers through the city would grow larger and larger and larger and larger until just like the, the, the prophet Habakkuk longed for and prophesied that one day all the earth will be filled with the glory of God. We ask you to continue to fill this earth with your glory. We thank you that you promised that you will one day make that happen. Holy Spirit, help us this morning. Help me as I uh, get ready to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1. We're actually going to finish up the first part of first half of chapter 1 this morning. And the Holy Spirit has a unique way. We've been in the same chapter for nine weeks. We've talked about or for seven weeks, actually, but we've talked about each of these spiritual blessings each week, and I hope that God has been just working in you in the ways that He's worked in me. It's just been a powerful time to gather around Ephesians chapter 1. We're just going to continue our march. It is Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter, but for us, we recognize, even though there is a wonderful church calendar that yearly takes us through the gospel of Jesus, we recognize that every single week is Resurrection Sunday because we serve a resurrected Lord. And this resurrected Lord is here with us this morning. And so although next week we will celebrate that, uh, we don't want to think that it's just one day a year that we celebrate our, our Christ, our Lord, the God of the universe being resurrected. He's, he's alive and He's here right now. And so, and by the way, we do have invitation cards and we want you to pass those out. Uh, we don't want you to invite people to Christ church. We want you to invite people into worship. Okay? We want you to invite them into worship. And so we're going to have these cards to give. So before we leave, somebody will we'll have to run back there and find them and hand those out for you to be able to give them away. Uh, we want people, as Russ preached a few weeks ago, we want the Word of God to grow in this area. So we want to invite people to come in here this Sunday morning, more than inviting them into Christ Church, we want to invite them into the worship of the God of the universe. And maybe they'll be a, become a part of the Church of God, the Church of, of Christ, when they come in here and they meet Jesus. So that's, that's what we want in the future. We're going to look at uh, four verses today, and it's going to send us all over the Bible. Uh, and those four verses are in Ephesians chapter 1, and it's verse 1, verse 5, verse 9, and 11. And verse 11 in particular is, I think, really, really profound, and it's going to send us on a little journey this morning in talking about the will of God. So look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. See that? By the will of God. We're going to be talking about God's will. 
First time God's will is mentioned in the first, first half of Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Is the second time it's going to be mentioned. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. That's the second time. So God's will. God's will. The third time is seen in verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose. We have His will and his purpose. So that's the third time the will of God is mentioned. And then the fourth time is in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, this passage in particular is the one that's going to send us, like I said, on our journey this morning. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, that's an alarming verse. And it can be a comforting verse and it can be a terrifying verse. But it's a verse that if we think about long enough, if we meditate long enough, it begins to, uh, there, there's questions that begin to pop up in our mind. At least there were for me. All things according to the counsel of his will. Now, in thinking about our world, it's easy to think about God working uh, the good things according to the counsel of his will. It's easy for me to think about God uh, working to things to the counsel of his will. And Jordan and I, before we got married, I got a, uh, a home makeover. I want a home makeover, and our, we got our house uh, completely redone just two weeks before we got married, which was uh, I was very thankful for because the first time Jordan's mother saw my house, I lived there with a, I was a bachelor with, a, with a three other buddies that lived there, and uh, it was uh, nasty uh, in the grossest kind of way. It was bad, and she actually cried. When she walked in there and walked out, like, oh my goodness, my daughter's going to have to live here. And uh, praise God, he uh, provided, um, uh, it was just bad. I won't go into any major details. Um, there was a booger curtain. It was that kind of bad. I'm sorry, I outed myself, and I probably have lost all credibility amongst you. So it was that bad, okay? Um, so I can understand uh, things working according to the counsel of God's will when God's like, son, you've got to grow up, you're getting married, I'm going to make this uh, easy on you here, and I'm going to turn your 73 trailer, and I'm gonna, it's going to be like, you know, exhibit on MTV in the 90s, I'm going to pimp your house. I mean, it's going to like, I'm going to completely change it, and he did it, and that was an amazing gift. It was a huge blessing, and it was from God. Um, so it's easy for me to think about those things working to the counsel of his will, but if all things work to the counsel of his will, how is it that atrocities that happen in the world can work to the counsel of God's will? How is it that your pain and your suffering and death and disease and cancer and, and being sinned against, rape and murder and a little boy in the Syrian conflict that's laying on the beach, I couldn't even see the image because it's so close to home with my son, how can all things work to the counsel of his will? Uh, we're going to talk about suffering this morning. And Solomon says, it's better to walk in the house of mourning than laugh in a company of fools. And so we're going to open up some difficult places in our heart. Here's my prayer. That's, this has been my prayer for, for this week, is that you would get past answers for your suffering, that you would get present comfort, and that you would be prepared for the future. Because I don't know about you, Jordan and I have talked about, hopefully one day we'll die when I'm 104 and she's 101 on the same day. You know, like, most likely that's not going to happen. Um, we're going to die, and people close to us are going to die someday. So that in and of itself proves to us that we're going to have some difficult days ahead. And then on the road, there's going to be people that we care about. There's going to be circumstances that happen that are really, really hard. And I promise if we can get through some of these uh, thoughts at the front end, 
uh, hopefully we'll get out the other end and we'll, we'll have some comfort. So I'm praying for past answers for you, and I've prayed for, even for myself, current comfort and future preparation. So when we talk about the will of God, we're going to talk about two wills. God has two wills. God has a moral will, and God has a sovereign will. Or we could say God has a revealed will and his moral will, his law, and God has a concealed will, which is his sovereign will. Let me try to explain two wills real quick, and then we'll get into this. Uh, when somebody's trying to get physically fit, they either uh, stop eating as much food and start exercising, or they start eating more food and trying to try, they try to gain weight, one, one thing or the other. And depending upon what you're trying to do, if you're trying to lose weight or gain weight, you have conflicting wills. Let's just say you're trying to lose weight. You really want to eat a salad. You know you should, but you really also want to eat a Dairy Queen Blizzard. And those are both real wills, are they not? They're contradictory, it seems, but they're very, very real. And it's not you being schizophrenic, it's at the same time wanting two different things. And so when we think about our lives as humans and people being created in the image of God, we have at any given time multiple wills. We could have 15 different wills at once. Has anybody been there before where it's like, I have no idea. I, have, I wish this would happen and that would happen, but maybe I wish that would happen and that would happen. Uh, I wish I'd win the lottery, and then no, I don't want the lottery, because then if you get rich, you get all internal, internally, you have different wills like crazy, it happens. But with God, primarily in the scriptures, we have two things that are revealed, his moral will and his sovereign will, his revealed will and his concealed will. And this, I pray, is going to be helpful when we talk about suffering, because that's where it, it's going to lead us this morning. When we think about this, when we think about the word suffering, it, it's pretty all-inclusive. And I've mentioned a lot of them already. Let me restate it. Murder, rape, thievery, child abuse, sexual assault, poverty, divorce. Then we talk about natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, disease, despair, hopelessness. It goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Questions abound. Uh, it's one of the number one reasons of atheism in the world is if there's a good God and he's supposedly all-powerful, why do bad things happen? If he could stop it and doesn't, why doesn't he? Philosophical uh, ideas roll on and on and on and on. Uh, whether you're a student or whether you're an adult, you're hit with these realities when suffering comes. God, where are you? What's your will? Why is this happening? So, first we're going to look at God's moral will. And here's what I want you to see. The scripture is opening up these two ideas. So if he works all things to the counsel of his will, that's primarily his sovereign will. We're going to look first at his moral will because I want us to be balanced. And one of the things I've tried to do each week as we've looked at the scriptures is be as balanced as we possibly can. It's popular in Christian circles. And, and hopefully by God's grace, we don't just have this, this uh, massive gap uh, in my own theology, but in, in often, it's often the case that from church to church or, or wherever, by even sometimes no fault of their own, uh, there's a ditch that they end up walking in, in one ditch or the other. And so uh, the whole Bible is either talked about, uh, well, sort of talked about, the partial of the part of the Bible is talked about and loved, and other parts of the Bible are uh, kind of not talked about. So it's kind of just shunned. And what I want to do over and over again is just say, let's get a fully biblical view here. Let's try to be as biblically as biblical as we possibly can, and, and then just kind of go from there. So first, we're going to look at God's moral will. God's moral will is what he has revealed in his commands, in his law. We see this beginning in chapter 2 of Genesis. We see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 through 17, and you can go ahead and turn there. 
uh, verses 15 to 17, excuse me. And I'm going to ask you to turn. One of the things you're going to notice this week, I thought about listing all of these passages down, but I want you to see me flipping through the Bible because I want you to do the same thing. We want to do this together. We want to be as familiar with our Bibles as we possibly can be. So I'm actually, instead of having them all written out of my notes, I've got them referenced, but I'm going to be turning there with you. So we're going to turn a lot this morning, uh, but hopefully that will, be, that will be helpful to us. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Here's what God said to Adam and what he was to tell Eve. The Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work and, he, and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God's revealed moral will here is Adam, you and make sure Eve doesn't do this either. You can eat, you have liberty to eat from anything except that. And it's my will that you would not eat from that. Okay? Well, what, what we know about the story of Adam and Eve is they broke God's moral will. They broke his law. This, in fact, is the story of the rest of the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 20, and we won't turn there. I'll tell you when, uh, when to turn. You can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 30. Go ahead and turn there as I talk about Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we have Moses coming down the mountain. God had given him... Excuse me, God had given him the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments uh, revealed to us God's revealed moral will. This is his will for his people, and it's binding across the globe. Um, this is what God has revealed. This is his will. But the story of the Old Testament unfolds, and we see time and time again the people of God disobeying the moral will of God. What God has revealed, they broke God's law time and time and time and time again. And if we just take one of God's moral laws found in Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt not covet, and we begin to evaluate our lives, we can still see, even as spirit-filled believers today, that that's still a wrestle for us. Is it not? You see something you like that you know you'd probably never even use as Backpacker Magazine comes into my house, and they have all the equipment for 2016 that's outlandishly priced. Okay, just go to Walmart and buy Ozark Trail stuff. It's good enough. Um... You look at all the stuff in this magazine and it's like a tent, like a little covering. I kid you not. It's like a covering for you to sleep outside in your tent. And all it does is it, it, it covers your head. That's it. It's like this little fishnet thing that covers your head. And your sleeping bag is down here. And you're just sleeping in your sleeping bag and you get this little net covering. It was like 120 bucks. Like who in their right mind is going to buy that? And, you know, some schmuck out there is going to go buy that. Like, goodness gracious. You put a bed sheet over your face or something. I don't know. Um... And so we, this, this tendency of coveting, we know that God's revealed will or his moral will to this day, it's getting broken. Okay, this is what God has clearly commanded. Do this and don't do this. He's revealed it, and we know that to be the case. Now look at Luke. Like I said, look at Luke. Uh, and, and then from Exodus 20, we see that over and over through the judges. Uh, we see uh, God's people saying, we'll obey. And then within one generation, they've completely fallen away and they are no longer obeying. And then God has to raise up another judge, judge to save them from being judged, from, to save them from being punished and wiped away. So this happens continually. God's will, God's moral will is broken. Okay? God's will is not being done. Okay? Then look at, like I said, Luke chapter 7, verse 30. Luke chapter 7, verse 30. This is interesting. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. Okay? Well, what was God's will? 
Well, God's will is that they, in this sense, in this, in this instance, would have been baptized, the Pharisees and the lawyers, but they rejected the will of God and they would not have it. And this can happen, folks. The will of God can be rejected. We can say, no, I don't want it. And people throughout the whole world are continually doing that. Whether they're suppressing the knowledge of the truth, they're suppressing the truth of God, or whatever, they are rejecting God's law. They're not doing what He wants them to do. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves. Oops, excuse me. Then also look at Luke 13, flip over, verse 34. Luke 13, verse 34. Jesus is looking over Jerusalem, and He laments over them. So he is sorrowful over them. Verse 34, here's what Jesus says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her, her brood under her wings and you were not willing. You were not willing. How often I would have, but you would not. And time and time again, the people of God, when they had prophets to come and declare the word of the Lord to them, they would not repent. They would not change. They went on their own way. So Jesus laments over Jerusalem, said, how often, but you were unwilling. You would not. This is God's moral law. Then in 1 Thessalonians, and I'll just read this. You don't have to turn there. You can. The next one you can turn to uh, is, go ahead and turn to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. And then hold on for a second because it'll be a minute before we get there. 1 Thessalonians has two interesting passages. Here's what it says. For this is the will of God. Okay, that's good. I want to know. Adam, you want to know what the will of God is? So do I. Okay, what is it? Your sanctification. That's revealed. It's very clear. God desires you to grow in godliness. That's His will for you. So in one sense, if you're ever praying, God, what's your will for my life? Spiritual growth. Maturity. It's God's will for you. Okay, here's another passage. In Second Thess or First Thessalonians, verse 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's will, it's revealed. Rejoice always. Now that's emotions, folks. There's people who will say, Well, God doesn't command us to have emotions. Well, he does right there. Rejoice always. Say, Well, I don't know how to have emotions. For that, well, pray for him, ask for him, because we have to have God's help to have right emotions too. Anybody hear emotional basket case every once in a while? Okay, I've been there, right? It's not a gender specific thing, lest we be sexist in the room. Very true. I'm an emotional basket case at times. Jordan, is that true? Yeah. <laughs> now, not a lot, not a lot. Mostly I'm calm, cool, and collected. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So do we understand the will of God, His moral will? The law of God. This is what He wants. God's moral will can be rejected. It's rejected every day. All the time. There's people who, even as believers, say, well, I don't want to grow. I want to do my own thing. Until the Holy Spirit begins to break them over that. And if the Holy Spirit's abiding in them, then the Holy Spirit eventually wins in that. Okay, This is God's moral will. Now here's what happens often. This is the only will that many people know about. The only kind of God's will that people know about. And there's a worldview that comes if this is the only, kind of, uh, only part of God's will that you know about. So here's the worldview of the person who only knows 
of God's moral will. So before we talk about God's sovereign will, we, we need to see some characteristics of those who only know of God's moral will. Here's some characteristics of what this person is going to think, how they believe the world to operate, uh, often even maybe what they say, and just see, because some of these hit me, and then the, some of the next ones hit me more uh, specifically, but this may be you. Number one way, we, number one, uh, and I've got four here, uh, number one is this, is that the person who only knows the, of God's moral will is this, human will, number one, human will, is the deciding factor on everything. God has many desires for you and the world, if only the people would cooperate. From salvation to blessings in life, it's up to you. God has desires, but primarily those desires go unmet. So God has desires that these things be, but in the end, your salvation and your blessings are up to you. How willing are you to receive them? And there's whole swaths of Christianity where this is the only area of God's will they know about. So they talk about God's desires and God's longings, and so often they simply go unmet. It's like he can't get done what he wants to get done. He has these desires, he wishes it could happen, but for some reason, just it's not happening. And we've already seen already that a part of God's more will, that, that in, like, in part, that's true, correct? Haven't we seen that? In part, that's true, where they rejected the purposes of God for themselves. So that we don't want to just say, like, oh, that's way out there and weird. Second, number two, Satan, in this worldview, only knowing the moral will of God, Satan is truly free. He is the cause of all bad things in the world. And God sees that, and God does not uh, want these bad things to happen, but the ruler of the, of the world gets his way. So in a worldview that only understands God's moral will, typically Satan is viewed as really, really big. Okay, really big. He's very, very strong, and it's almost as if there's like a dualistic yin and yang uh, operation of the universe. So there's good and evil, and there's this constant battle going on, and sometimes God's getting the upper hand, and sometimes man is getting the upper hand. Uh, this is a typical, typical um, a part of the worldview who only, the, the person who only knows the moral will of God. And number three, God's favor is on you, is God's favor upon you is only as solid as your ability to keep his moral law. So for those who only primarily think in accordance with God's moral law, God's favor upon this person in their mind and the way they live in their daily life, God's favor is based upon how well they're keeping the moral law of God. So if I'm doing what God has revealed for me to do, then He's happy with me. If I'm not, not. There's not a concept of God's sovereign will. There's not a concept of even salvation by grace through faith because this person is caught up on what they're doing and not doing for God. They're trying to please God through their actions because they know God's moral law. They know what God wants. I'm trying to please Him by obeying Him. Okay? That's the third characteristic. The fourth characteristic for those who hyper are hyper-focused and only know of God's moral will, fourth characteristic is that they believe nations are saved by God's moral law. Therefore, the, this person will be heavy, heavy into politics, and it will play a huge part of your worldview in, in the sense that this, you will believe that God's favor will rest upon America if we get the Ten Commandments in every courthouse in America. Or God's favor will stay if we can just get our moral law right. Um, nations, let's say this, excuse me. Individuals are not saved by God's moral law, nor are nations. But those who have a hyper-focus on the moral law 
of God, that's typically the characteristics. And let me just ask you this. Um, some of you, and we can out ourselves here, we can be honest, uh, who in here, in some of those things that I listed out, you thought like, okay, I'm kind of like that a little bit. Anybody? Anybody? Because I'm going to raise my hand on the next one. Okay, so, okay, you know, hopefully, unless I'm like, like everybody out here is like, what in the world is Jaron talking about today? I have no idea. Um, okay, let's make it easier on you. Have you ever seen folks that have talked like that or have had a worldview like that? Okay, yes. Okay, we, we have. Uh, and maybe we've been there, maybe we're there. And that's okay. That's, we're all in different parts of life. It's okay. Um, this is a reality. Those who only know of God's moral, moral law. But today, in Ephesians chapter 1, we talked about God working all things to the counsel of His will. Okay? So now, we need to talk about, let's say yes to God's moral law and His moral will, but now let's talk about the concealed will of God, the sovereign will of God. And here's how we're going to work through this. We're going to work through this in six different steps. One, we're going to look at God's sovereignty over nature and weather, natural disasters even. Secondly, we're going to look at God's sovereignty over animals, the animal kingdom. Then his sovereignty over humans, then his concealed or uh, his uh, his sovereign will over Satan, and then his sovereign will over suffering, five, and then sovereign will over six all things. So six things, sovereign will over all things. Okay, this I think is where we're going to be stretched a little bit more. So turn, uh, you're already there. Psalm one thirty five, um, and I promise at the end. We're going to look at how holding these two things together can be a comfort for us through difficulty as we petition God to work and heal and change circumstances and bring restoration. And then secondly, we, we trust in His sovereign, sovereign will. So Psalm 135, 6 and 7. Here's what it says. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Let's think about that. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Whatever he wants to do, he does. Okay? In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth wind from his storehouses. You see a storm coming. You say, there's the power of God. You see the wind blow. That's just a fragment of his power. You see the power of a hurricane, the power of a tornado, the power of whatever. And here you see just a small glimpse, like a window into the power of God. He has wind in his storehouses? Are you kidding me? Whatever he does, pleases, he does. Psalm 148, flip over there. Psalm 148, 5 and 8. 5 through 8. Here's what it says. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all depths, all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling His word. Get that? Hail. I've got hailstone marks on my truck. Okay? It was ding, 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 ding. I was driving a few years ago. And, okay, hold on a second. Hail. It's got storehouses full of hail. God is not disconnected from when the hail comes and destroys whatever. Okay, God is not disconnected from that. And keep in mind that God is perfectly holy, just, and good. Okay, He does not tempt anyone with evil, nor is He tempted with evil. Okay? So we see also the hail 
The stormy wind fulfill his word. The mist and the snow. The snow coming down today? Why is the snow coming down? Well, God's not disconnected from that, and it's not an accident. Okay? The snow's coming down because God sent snow today. Okay? Amos 3.6. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. Flip over there. A minor prophet. Little book. If you have to look in your court, uh, what's it not concordance? Uh, what's it called in the front? Table of contents. Yeah. Okay. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city, and the people of God are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Now, wait a second. Okay. Now, I told you this is going to be challenging to us. This should challenge us. God is not evil. And yet somehow or another, does disaster, the prophet, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, cries out, does disaster come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? We know the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Right? That was God's, God's revealed will in that was, it was judgment upon Jericho. But often, we don't know his concealed will when disaster comes upon a city. But it's not purposeless. It's not just random. There's some purposes in God's concealed will for it. Isaiah 45, 4-7. And then that's the last place I'll have you turn. And then I'm going to do some turning in this section. So Isaiah chapter 45, verse 4-7. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no other God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that my people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, if you've ever read your Bible through the, through the year, you've bumped up against verses like this, and you've went, what? Right? Okay, now, keep in mind that this is God talking here. So this is an interesting thing. This is, these are things that the Bible brings up for us. These are not manufactured paradoxes that we have to come up with. The Bible just does it for us. It just says, it's like this is God's Word. In the same way that we read the Pharisees rejected the purpose of God for themselves, the moral will of God. Here we see some sovereign things of God uh, in this passage. He makes well-being and creates calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Okay, second, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the animal kingdom. So I'm going to turn over, and you can just listen for a while if you want all these passages Later, you can have them. But I'm going to just flip Psalm 104, verse 21. Here's what we're going to see about the animal kingdom. This is pretty profound because there's a lot of animals out there. So look at or listen to this. Psalm 104, verse 21. Here's what it says. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. The young lions roar for their prayer, prey, Seeking their food from God. In this sense, or in this passage, what the psalmist wants us to know is that the lion is dependent upon God for his food. The lion doesn't eat unless God provides for its food. 
Okay, so the lion is dependent upon God to bring prey from afar. Another place in the animal kingdom that we see is Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. And we talk about the birds. Think about how many birds there are in the world. A lot of birds out there, right? In southern Illinois, we see long, massive packs. I don't even know what they're called. I guess flocks of birds that just fly through the sky. And it's like you can't see. You ever seen one of those, those lines of birds? You can't see the, the front. You can't see the back. There's just millions of them. You know, just millions. And you always think like, man, I, well, when I was a kid, I would think there, there must be a lot of poop under where they're flying right there. Just bird poop everywhere. Swaths of like lines. You can see where that line of birds flew, you know, just follow the poop. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. Here's what it says. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father knows how to feed them. Are you not more of value than they? Now, every single bird out there that's flying, to get energy to fly, they had to find worms. And the rain had to come, bring those worms up out of the, out of the ground, and those birds had to go, and with their eyes that God designed, they had to fly down and find... They don't have, birds don't have storehouses. Squirrels, on the other hand. <laughs> But the intent here is to say, hey, listen, even if you don't have anything in your storehouse, I know how to provide for the birds. I know how to provide for you. Okay? So the foods depend on the God of the universe as a part of his sovereign will. Every time it's just a normal occurrence for us. We just don't think about it. We, the, a, a part of seeing the world through the lens of God at work in the world is, is a firm commitment to the omniscience of God that he's everywhere. So if we get that in our mind that he's everywhere, we start seeing the activity of God a little bit more. We walk out, we see a bird fly down, get a worm. Okay, oh, God, thank you for providing for that bird. You did that. It wasn't just natural order of things. God provided food for that bird. Okay, Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 says something similar. Here's what it says. It says this, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father? Every single sparrow that falls to the ground. These cheap birds in that society. Little sparrows, we see them all around. And not a single one of them falls without the Father of the world knowing about it. If He cares about the falling of the dead sparrow, does He not care about it? Are we not more of value to them? So every single sparrow, we see over the animal kingdom this kind of unified voice that God is not distant from animals. That even the animal kingdom is dependent upon the God of the universe to provide for them. Okay? So God is in control of, sovereign over, in charge of, finally. These are not just random acts. God is providing for them. Now we're going to look at humans. Genesis chapter 45, verse 7 and 8. And actually, you can go ahead and turn here. This is the story of Joseph. And uh, for many of you, uh, for some of you, maybe not many of you, some of you, the story of Joseph has been pretty, pretty profound, you know, just a really profound thing. It's interesting that Genesis has uh, two chapters on creation. It's got 13 chapters on God's work through Joseph. It's just fascinating. Chapter 45, verse 7 and 8, here's what this says. And God sent me, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and keep you alive and keep alive for you many survivors. It was not you who sent me here, but God. How did Joseph end up in Egypt? Well, he was sold. And then he was sold into Egypt. 
And Joseph would have the audacity or the gall to say, it wasn't, you may have sent me, but it was God who sent me here to provide. You know, years later, there would be a famine in Egypt. Okay, well, actually, this is the scene. And God kept the promises of a coming Messiah and blessing the world through Israel going because He saved them from the famine by bringing them into Egypt. And then they multiplied and went out 400 years later as a great company of people. So God had a purpose through Joseph's suffering. I think when he was in the pit or in the prison or in the dungeon that he might have wondered, God, do you have any purpose in this at all? How can you make something beautiful out of this? And if we only know of God's moral will, we have no answer for that. If all we know about is God's moral will, then everything's chaos. The evil in the world has no point whatsoever. There's nothing that God could be up to in this. But if we're aware of God's sovereign will, then we can say, even if I'm the pit, God's got purposes for this that are concealed. I have to trust and believe. Matthew chapter 11 and the great line in Genesis chapter 50 is what, uh, what the enemy meant for evil. Or how's the line? Uh, what's Joseph's line? You turn it for a good. That's Job, uh, which is true also, but I forget what I'm thinking of. But uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. We're going to keep turning. I know there's a lot of turning, and, and this is not normal. And uh, look at Matthew chapter 25. Or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 25. Chapter 11, verse 25. And Jesus at that time declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Here, Jesus rejoices in and praises God for revealing things from people. God's sovereign over humans, even. Here, Jesus reveals that he praises his Father for, for concealing things from some people and revealing them to others. That We see that God has some sort of in, he's in control here, even of people who, whose eyes are blind, there's something going on here. It's that human actions, although we've talked over and over again, humans make real decisions. We'll see some consequences of only holding the sovereign will uh, here in a little bit. But we know that Jesus rejoices here. God, thank you for concealing these things from some. Then in Romans 9, 19-21, what is rejoiced in, we can just go ahead and turn there real quick. 19 to 21, here's what it says. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? Who can resist His will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? God is sovereign over natural things. He's sovereign over humans or animals and He's sovereign over humans even. And we will, as we hear that God's sovereign over humans, want to talk back to God, and the answer we get, we, we all wish kind of sometimes we would get more, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? You're clay, I'm the potter. I can use you for my purposes. You're the clay. Remember, you're the clay. Yes, you're my son, you're my daughter. You're human, creating my image. You're clay, and I'm sovereign and in charge over you. What about Satan? Is God sovereign over Satan? And for the sake of time, we're going to move through this a little bit quicker. Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, here's what we see. Satan roaming to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. And he comes up in this divine council and stands before God or kneels before God or whatever. I don't know how the dialogue goes. 
but he asks permission. Actually, God says, have you considered my servant Job? And everything that Satan does to Job, he has to get permission for. And Satan does a mighty work. He, he destroys and he kills even. Satan even kills. All based on the permission that God gave him. Satan is not a free agent. We see that he regularly has to get permission. This is going to be profoundly comforting to you that Satan is on a leash. He is not freely roaming throughout the world. He does a lot of awful things, but he is not out there free to do whatever he wants to do. He is restrained. He is even finally defeated already. And we see that he's even sovereign over Satan and over demons in 1 Samuel uh, uh, chapter 16. I'll show you one example of this. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Um, and you can go ahead and turn there if you would like. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Here's what, verse 14 to 23. This is another head scratcher when you're reading through your Bible through the year. Here's what it says. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tor tormented him tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Now, here's what we can get. Somehow or another, God is not tempting, nor does he tempt anyone with evil, but he's sovereign even over evil spirits. That evil spirits are not free. That God can say to a demon, Go do this. I've got purposes. And that demon's like, Okay, I'll go cause havoc. He has no idea that he's fulfilling the purposes of the Lord. God ended up removing Saul for his rebellion. God has purposes even over Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 and 8, we see that Paul gets a thorn in the flesh, and it's hotly debated in some circles what the thorn of the flesh is. Regardless, it was a messenger of Satan. And it was given to him to keep him from being conceited. He got this wonderful vision caught up in the third heaven, whatever that is, and to keep him humble, God gives him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan. So God, to humble and to sanctify Paul, uses Satan to do it. Now, can you imagine the rage that came from Satan when he saw Paul being humbled? When he's trying to destroy Paul? No, I'm going to do this thorn in the flesh, try to destroy you. And God's back here like, oh no, you're going to humble my servant. And you see humility being worked in the Apostle Paul? Satan is not free to do what he wants in this world. Okay, suffering, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. All through this, we see that God is sovereign. I'll just give a couple verses again for the sake of time. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11 says this. When Moses is complaining about his stuttering, uh, God says to him, Who has made man blind, deaf, or dumb? Is it not I, the Lord? People born with abnormalities, people born even with mental disabilities, God has purposes for them. They're not simply an accident who need to be fixed. God has a unique way He wants to reveal His glory through our physical limitations. Okay, Adam Kulig. Does anybody know Adam Kulig in here? Okay, Adam Kulig praises God and he is mentally disabled and he'll even mimic whatever praise and worship leader is up there and he does a fantastic job. He loves Hulk Hogan and he doesn't want cooties. But man, that, that man, he's my age and he loves Jesus and there's a part of who he is of God has created him to be. He's not an accident. God has made him that way to reveal some things about God's glory. 
Like it's it's the people all over who deal with physical limitations and abnormalities, and and they think, "Oh, I'm just broken." And no, no, you you're created too, also in the image of God. Your abnormalities are not outside God's sovereign control. Suffering, God is sovereign over suffering. First Peter chapter two says, "Is it not good that we should suffer? If that be uh, suffer for doing God's will, it, suffer for doing good. If that should be the Lord's will." Suffering? God's will for me? How do you suffer? Well, through the hands of sinful people is how you suffer, okay? Well, okay, Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you not only to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but to suffer for His sake. And Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11, one more passage, says this, For I am God, there's no other. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes, calling a bird of prey from the east, and the man of my counsel from a far country I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. If a bird comes from the east and flies to the west, comes to the west and flies to the east, it's because they're doing the bidding of the Lord. My purpose will stand. This is a sovereign, concealed will. Now, here's what we need. We need both. We need both God's sovereign will and His moral will. Let me read this. Hopefully this doesn't get too personal, but hey, we, I think this will be helpful for you. For example, if you were badly abused as a child, and someone asks you, do you think that was the will of God? You now have a way to make a biblical sense out of this and give an answer that doesn't contradict the Bible. You may say, No, it was not God's will because He commands that humans not be abusive but love each other. The abuse broke His commandment and therefore moved His heart with anger and grief. And let me tell you this, if you've ever been sinned against, the good thing about God's sovereign will is He's strong enough to bring judgment upon those who need it. And those actions of being sinned against will not go unpunished. They will be punished on the cross or in hell. They do not get away with it. And you didn't know it was not God's will. And yet He's strong enough to do something about it. They broke His law. And God hates that. But in another sense, this is what could sound hard. Bear with me. It was God's will. His sovereign will. Because there are hundreds of ways He could have stopped it. But for reasons I don't yet fully understand, He didn't. Concealed will. And corresponding to these two wills are two things that you need in this situation. One is that God is strong enough, sovereign enough to turn it for good. And the other is a God who is able to empathize with you. You need a God who will cry with you. You have Jesus, Jesus wept. And you need to have a God to say, you know what, it's not wasted. I have purposes for it and in it. And friends, if you being sinned against was purposeless, I promise God has something for you in it to turn it for your good. To turn it for His glory. To make something beautiful out of it. And the reason I know that, the thing that's going to bring all this together, and I know if I, if I mention time, and I'm already breaking this, preachers aren't supposed to mention time because then everybody looks at their clock and watches. And Sorry, we're going to take just a couple more minutes and we're going to look at this and just bear with me. Bear with me. We can go long sometimes. I want you to see Acts chapter 2. And you're going to go ahead and flip there. Verses 22 through 23. And Andy, you can go ahead and come up. The band... We're going to look at this. The crucifixion was the most sinful act in human history. True innocence violated. Jesus was crucified by the hands of lawless men. It was gross. He was innocent. He did not deserve it. 
and yet it came upon him. And here's what I want you to see. Chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The worst sin in human history was predetermined. You get that? The grossest sin in the history of the world. The greatest amount of innocence ever sinned against. Let me show you how powerful God is. Let's see this again. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Here's what it says. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You get that? Herod, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak in all world and boldness. And God did a powerful work. The point is, the crucifixion, the worst sin in the history of the world, was not outside of God's charge. And if God was in charge of the worst sin in the history of the world, cannot we trust Him with our difficulties and our pain? If He turned the worst sin in the history of the world into the most beautiful thing, that the world has ever seen, if He burned everything, every ounce of dross away from the evil, wicked act and pulled out of it the most beautiful gold, the most beautiful story that the world has ever seen, that every story told since before the crucifixion and resurrection or even after the crucifixion and resurrection was all centered around these stories we tell about redemption. It's all out after this beautiful thing that came from the worst sin in the history of the world. If God is big enough to do that, can we trust Him even when we don't understand? With our pain. That's what we need to know. We need to know God's sovereign will. Here are some things that come when we understand, and I forgot a whole section of this sermon about a worldview of a person who only knows God's sovereign will, so forgive me for that. Uh, There are four things I can give that to you here later because there's people who get woefully imbalanced in this as well. And only want to talk about God's sovereign will. And they don't want to talk about people rejecting God's purposes for themselves. Okay? But here are five comforts from holding both of these wills together. Number one, we can know by God's moral will that God hates and punishes evil. Hates it. His wrath is building for those who break His moral law. His sovereign, He is sovereign, so He has the ability to punish those lawbreakers too. Second comfort from holding these truths together. We can trust God's sovereign even when His moral will is being broken. God will ultimately be in charge of even the nations. Chaos in the political world, in the highest level, not really. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way He will. Number three, God is in the business of growing us up spiritually. Okay, Spiritual growth comes through adversity. David says this, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119.71 Remember, Paul's thorn brought him humility. Number four, we experience God through suffering. One quick illustration. Ransom was sick a while back, and Ransom always has access to my lap. He can always sit on my lap. 
But when he's sick, when he's sick, he got all he could eat chocolate and all he could eat popcorn. And that's a privilege he only got when he was sick. There are privileges that we get, intimacy with God that we get through pain that our sovereign Father in His concealed will is allowing to happen that we would draw near to Him and that He would draw near to us. He loves you. Number five, even though we break God's moral law daily, he, by His sovereign will, the Word says that no one will snatch them from my Father's hand. John 10. Conclusion, Romans 8, 28. For those who love God and are called according to the purpose, God works all things Things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things. All things. Not that all things are good. All things work together for the good. Amen. And then last, Ephesians 1.11. He works all things to the counsel of His will. We need both. God's sovereign will and His moral will. We're going to give an opportunity in God's sovereign will because God is sovereign. He can break open and unleash heaven on earth. And He can bring heaven to earth. Right now. Because God's sovereign, we're going to pray two types of prayers. And I'm going to invite you to do this at your seat or wherever. If you want to come pray, we can pray. We're going to be doing some praying up here, Russ and Andy and I. We're going to pray for physical healing. God's sovereign. Because He's sovereign, He can heal. He commands us to pray for healing. So He, he commands us to do that. James chapter 5. And he's sick among you, let him call the elders and pray. Anoint him with oil. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So we're going to pray for that. He has the ability to do that. And we're going to pray prayers of trust. Prayers of trust. We're going to pray that God's moral will would advance. You can pray this in any way you see fit. Any way that the Holy Spirit was working on you in this sermon. Um, God is sovereign. He's got a moral will. Let's pray for His moral will to advance. That this is God's will for you. Your sanctification. Growth. And let's trust in His sovereign will. His concealed will. Even when we don't understand, God, we trust You. Let me pray and then invite you to pray as we sing and as we worship. Uh, we'll be up here praying if you would like to pray. Um, how's that going to work? Are you going to pray too? Here? Or is Hank going to lead? Uh, forget. There's, a, there's one song before. There's one song before, okay. Let's just uh, follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. God, I thank You for this opportunity that we have. And... Uh, Thank you for building. I pray for the kids even as kind of we've gone longer. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd work in there and that you'd work in this room the rest of the time we have together to worship you. Help, help us and comfort us through difficulty and pain. Help us to hold these, both these truths, your two wills together. Let us worship you. Holy Spirit, work in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we, um...